everyone. This is Sandy Vartharaja, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I interviewed Nate Maslach, co-founder and CEO of Ribbon Health. Ribbon is the only solution to offer a single seamless API layer that integrates into each healthcare organization's existing workflows to build connectivity across the entire industry and improve the accuracy of its data with its spread and use. Ribbon is backed by leading investors like Andreessen Horowitz, Y Combinator, Fox Group, and several leading entrepreneurs. Before Ribbon, Nate worked at McKinsey and helped exit a successful predictive analytics startup for $1.2 billion. Nate studied at Harvard Business School and Washington University in St. Louis. Hope you enjoy the episode. So, Nate, let's start with your story of all the industries possible. Why choose the most regulatory, dense, super opaque, complex industry to work in? I think like a lot of folks who end up starting companies in the space have personal reasons for doing so. And ultimately, the goal was never to start a company or build a venture-backed SaaS business. The goal was always to solve a problem. And the problem that Ribbon's trying to solve is the fact that healthcare decisions are being made in silent environments with inaccurate data. And it just drives an immense amount of pain for patients. It adds cost to the system. And I think it impacts everybody in this country in one way or another. So for me, that's the ultimate problem that we think about, kind of the why this and why me. Um, from my background, I started working in healthcare consulting, and this is relevant. I did healthcare consulting out of college, mainly for systems and payers in the Midwest. Did that for a couple of years, saw a lot of problems within the healthcare system, but loved the work. And I saw a lot of the kind of impact that you could have at a higher level, kind of like trying to drive structural change. I was also doing things like running claims analysis in Excel to help large payers and state governments determine how to price reimbursement, which is insane. That should never be done in Excel. And so it was pretty clear that as an industry, we were behind in our approaches that we were taking. I think that the industry's come a long way since, but I still think we have a long way to go. So kind of fast forward a few years when I met my co-founder, I was in business school, my mom needed help finding a doctor and she was having joint pain. She wasn't sure what was wrong. And I figured this is great. I went to WashU for undergrad. More than half my friends are doctors, a lot of them back where I grew up. And I was like, awesome. I'll ask them who the best doctor is for joint pain. I had some connections that I could kind of help my mom skip the queue. So about as a privileged healthcare experience as you can imagine. And my mom went to this doctor who was a phenomenal doctor for back pain. My mom was not having back pain, but they still did tests to confirm that she wasn't having back pain. And alas, she wasn't. And then she got referred to a hip doctor, then a knee doctor, then an elbow doctor, and so on and so forth. And after about six months and over $3,000 in medical bills, my mom was on the verge of personal bankruptcy and felt like she had to pull out of the system and no one knew what was wrong. And... In retrospect, my mom was a middle-aged woman who did yoga seven days a week. It was tough on her joints. And one of our friends who's a primary care doc was like, oh yeah, this happens a lot. Try not doing yoga for a month. And it worked. And so there was this moment of getting lost in the healthcare system, having no clue how to navigate it. For somebody who was coming from a position of privilege and kind of medical literacy and knowing how to navigate, thinking, allegedly knowing how to navigate the system. And for me, it was very clear that if we got in the situation that there were many folks who were far worse off, were having much worse experiences, or not even able to access the system from the first place. So... That was a personal story. My co-founder has kind of a more inspiring, positive story where he was actually born clinically deaf. And if you talk to him now, you would have no idea. And it's awesome because that is our healthcare system working in its best of ways. His family was able to navigate the system well. They were able to get to the right doctors at the right time. And so when we were talking about this, it was just this clear juxtaposition of what could be 
and what is. So we didn't set out to start a company. We actually just pulled together like pretty janky forum thread of how to navigate healthcare. If you want to read about conditions, here's seven websites. Here's the Mayo Clinic's view on this condition. Here's WebMD. If you want to check your symptoms, here's five awesome symptom checkers, the buoys of the world. And I think that those companies are so exciting. And we just wanted to help our friends find them. How do you find a doctor? How do you estimate cost of care? And our friends started to use it. And mind you, we're in business school at this time. We have a lot of free time. And like, this is so cool. What if we made it a little bit of a platform? So we ultimately ended up building a effectively a direct-to-consumer platform for healthcare navigation. And as we were graduating, the natural question was, how do we make this into a business so it could self-sustain? So again, the goal wasn't to drive like a venture-backed exit. The goal was to build something that could exist on its own. We started selling into employers. We saw pretty good success there. We were lucky enough to get into Y Combinator and that helped accelerate some of that growth. And so a couple of months after graduation, we were live with our first few employers and people were using the thing and we were seeing 90% month over month engagement. It, we felt like we had cracked something and it's tough to get to that level of engagement for a digital first healthcare solution. And then all of a sudden, all of our metrics flipped. And we went from comments like, I'm so happy that we have this solution. I finally got my husband to see a doctor for the first time in five years. To then that same person saying, when we called the doctor, the phone number was wrong. The address was wrong. They weren't in network when you said they were. I can't use this thing. And our engagement plummeted. And I think we lost a lot of credibility. And we realized that there was a doctor data problem on our hands that we had no idea. We totally took for granted that doctor information that was out there was accurate. Because why wouldn't it be? And then when we started doing our own testing, we found that that information was about 50% accurate. And so we started trying to fix a solution ourselves. My co-founder is a software engineer with a data and analytics background. I, after consulting, joined a tech startup that was in the predictive analytics space, solving a similar-ish problem in the advertising space. And we looked at this and we said, this has been solved before in other places. Why not try to do that here? So we started trying to build a better master for our own internal software system so that people could actually find a doctor. Wild concept. And then some of our competitors that were coming up at the same time started coming to us asking if they could license that data. And there was this aha moment. I mentioned that we were always in it to have as much impact as we could. And we realized that we had kind of an A or B decision, A being use this asset as a way to compete or B, democratize access to this asset and help power all of these different solutions who are all trying to find their own solution for provider data. We felt like we could have way more impact much faster by shifting to that. And so at the beginning of 2018, we had shut down our employer solution, our employee tool. We launched an API and we became Ribbon Health. We've been at it for almost three years since. Why the name Ribbon Health? And so were you always us, Ribbon, like from the B-School days? No, no, we had this horrible name uh, that we literally made up when we were incorporating because we didn't realize we would need a name when we were incorporating. And so we were originally called HealthWiz which probably some of your listeners might not even be able to kind of hear it correctly. And on the phone, nobody could hear it. And people were asking us if we were like a urine test, a mobile urine test, <laughs> not a good name and not something that we really thought through. And so we knew that we needed to change our name, one, because we <laughs> think it was a very good name, but two, to signify the shift in the direction of the company. And for us, as we were trying to figure out what is it that we were really trying to do we felt like Ribbon is this infrastructure platform or plumbing for the solution. Plumbing health didn't sound terribly exciting. But ultimately, what we were trying to do is help other solutions 
make what they were doing just a little bit better, just a little bit more seamless, more usable. And so we felt like we were really trying to tie a ribbon on top of whatever we were working with and we became Ribbon Health. It also just elicits this image of a very like crisp, simple thing that has a lot of utility. So I love the name. I want to go back, double click on something you said earlier about your mom's story on traveling through the system and doctors referring to one another. Because I think, I know Ribbon may not be attacking this problem directly today, but why do you think that exists? Is it because doctors don't know how much other doctors cost? Are they incentivized to over-proceduralize? Like, why is that even a problem today? I have a lot of empathy for the providers who were, in my view, really doing their best. And I think that these are great doctors and a great hospital system. But I think it's important to kind of put yourself in the shoes of the people trying to make these decisions. Like, they're exhausted. They're busy. They have to see so many patients. They're looking at seven, eight people in an hour. And they have a very short window of time. And so when somebody comes in and they say, this person is having X problem, they try to treat that problem. And then when they realize that the problem doesn't exist, they'll say, well, who else can treat a problem that you might have? So there is kind of the goal of a holistic treatment. But I just do think that the way that our system has become so hyper-specialized, one of the downsides of that is that sometimes things get missed. And we're very lucky. I don't, this wasn't something that was life-threatening, but I do think that one, it's just lack of time. And two, I don't think that there's enough of a support infrastructure for providers to be able to make these decisions. I don't know if you've ever sat down with a referral coordinator or a doctor trying to make a referral, but they have to go into this clunky EMR where there's like this referral or order entry module There's very little information available. Where it is available, it's frequently incorrect. They don't even trust it. And so what we've actually seen, like the real behavior that's happening is either a provider says, well, I know somebody who I trust. So there's that, like, I think this is a good doctor. I trust them. I've sent people there before. Or there's the, we're not sure what to do. Let's go find the right doctor. And so what we've seen is these referral coordinators who have binders where they're keeping track of different doctors very little information sharing, you know, across clinics, maybe a little facts that these are people who are doing their best and they are truly exhausted because this is hard. And then they have to Google a doctor and then they realize that the phone number is wrong or the address is wrong. And then they go through this whole process that a lot of the folks who are using our old product were going through as well. And a referral can take as long as an hour or more to get from find a doctor to actually book the appointment. With Ribbon, we found that to be a lot faster, but I think it's just kind of a dearth of information within the workflows. And there are a lot of different workflows that folks have defaulted to because they have to do something and they care about the patient. Fascinating problem that this problem of trusting data not only exists for patients, but providers themselves. So that's not only alarming, (laughs) but provides a really useful case for Ribbon to, to be able to add value to those teams. So why is it so hard to keep an updated phone number on a profile? Yeah, like at first glance, it shouldn't be hard to maintain. It's just a phone number. It's just an address. We have white pages and yellow pages forever. And yet this problem of provider data persists. So just some context for our listeners, the average provider director, even if you look up at a health plan website, is 50% or less accurate for just contact information, phone numbers, addresses, maybe specialty. But that doesn't even consider some of those other even more dynamic elements like which insurance plan does this doctor accept to your point. And so I think to me, the reason that this is so hard to maintain, one, I think that this data is quite dynamic. Doctors move practices. Doctors will practice in multiple practices. 
practices will get shut down, a new one gets reopened. Frequently, a practice will get acquired by a hospital. What happens then? How does that affiliation happen? Does that doctor move rooms? So you have all these little moments. And any one doctor is probably not moving seven times a year. But if you look in aggregate across the over a million doctors, over 4 million providers, that starts to add up. Second, I think that there's a problem of a lack of truth data. So a lot of places that will show provider data will pull from other places that are shown provider data who have pulled from somewhere else that's shown provider data. And you start to lose track of where something actually came from. And a provider, even one that has the resources to be able to maintain this information everywhere, can't keep up with all the different places where this has been because they also have to hope that whatever platform pulled data from the old platform is updated too. They probably haven't. And a lot of people will start with the national provider registration system, MPES. Every provider gets a national provider identifier when they become a doctor or when they become a licensed provider. And then they need to add a phone number and address for that. And the way that that is maintained today is only the provider themselves can go in and add that information and update it. And we've looked at this data and it was funny, there were some buildings in Chicago, which is just where we kind of took a look at this experiment, where we saw a high concentration of providers, except it wasn't a medical clinic, it was an apartment building. And it was because that's where a lot of med school students live when they commute to med school in Chicago. And that was just the address that they put down because they needed to put an address. And I don't think that there's enough education of what this means for you 17 years down the line if you don't update this piece of information. So I think it's a combination of one, providers are busy, they don't have time to manage this information and it's changing. And then two, they probably have managed it somewhere. I think there was a recent study that showed that providers are spending the equivalent of over $5 billion a year trying to maintain their own provider data. Health plans are spending over $2 billion a year trying to maintain provider data. And this is just directory information. The thing that's most stark is there's clearly a cost burden on providers and health plans. They should know very well and have an incentive to update their own directories. Like if I'm a health plan, I want my patients to seamlessly find a doctor. Well, I guess perhaps there's perverse incentives. Maybe insurance companies want to make it difficult for you to find a doctor. Have you found that to be the case at all? We at Ribbon really think about like the healthcare system is always having the best intent. And I think that for the people that we talk to at health plans, they really do. I don't, I've never encountered somebody at a health plan who wants actively for a patient to not be able to pull this information. But I think if you put yourself in the health plan shoes and how this information is being sent to them, you start to build a little bit more empathy for what these people are going through. So health plans are looking at their contract data and a doctor can be in network at a place where they don't practice. As an example, if I'm a part of an independent physician's association as a doctor, I'm thinking about maintaining my practice. I've outsourced some of the administration to the IPA and that's my goal. That's why I pay the money for it. And then the IPA has an incentive to make sure that I am able to get reimbursed for every procedure that I do, which is why they're hired. And that's why we have a health insurance system. So this should work in theory, except what a lot of times will happen with these incentives is that let's say that you have an IPA with 20 clinics, each one is 20 providers, and they're all now a part of the same association. They'll go and network with every single clinic. Now you have 400 providers in network with 20 different clinics. Why wouldn't you then submit all of those as a network? Maybe as a doctor, I want to maintain my optionality. 90% of the time I'm here, 10% of the time I'm somewhere else. But what if there's a patient who needs my help and they can only get to that other clinic? I want to make sure I can accept their insurance, but I'm only there once a year. The health plan gets that information. That's attested information directly from the provider group. And even that is actually not true because it's a question of whose truth are we talking about? Is it the IPA's truth? It's absolutely true that this doctor should be in network at this location. The contracting team at the health plan thinks so too. 
the provider directory team gets that data and they say, great, this is attested. It goes to the health plan website. And then a patient calls to book that doctor at that location and they're not there, but maybe they'll be there in six months. That's why I think you have this huge problem with provider data. And then again, layer back on the fact that now other people are pulling information from these sources of information and that just gets amplified. So you give a megaphone to this messy, noisy data, and it's almost impossible, or I guess before Ribbon, it was almost impossible to figure out what was right and what was wrong. So now that we've talked about health plans a little bit more, how intricate is the insurance plan mapping? So for our listeners, there are carriers like United Healthcare, Aetna, et cetera, and then plan yep. levels. And often there can be thousands of plans per carrier. How are they contracted on the provider level, at the clinic level, health system level? Can it vary for different doctors within a practice? What does that system look like? Yeah, it's a great question. I and mean, I think like a lot of things in healthcare, it depends. It depends on the health plan. It depends on the provider. A good amount of the time, what you'll see is a doctor being in network for a given location with a given health plan. And then some plans will map the different networks. So the moment that somebody's in one network, they'll be accepting many different plans across a larger carrier. Some contracts are done at a hospital system level. And if it's an employed doctor, maybe all of those doctors go in network, maybe not. These are negotiations that are happening between a hospital system or an IPA or an individual doctor and a health plan and their contracting team and their networking team. And that's another reason why this is so confusing. And at a micro level, all of these contracts make sense, right? Everyone's trying to do their best. But then the amount of complexity that you see as you roll that up at an aggregate level gets really hard. So Ribbon is collecting information on a accepted insurance plan for a given doctor down to the plan name and network level, because as a patient, you see your insurance card. It says X plan HMO or POS2 you're going to try to find a doctor who accepts that. Um, you're not thinking about, well, what, like, what might the carrier network arrangement be with this hospital system? And so we go down to that level, and then we're maintaining all of these mappings. And we're doing so both at an individual provider level and at a location level, because a given doctor could be in network, but the facility that they're practicing in might actually be out of network. And as a patient, what you care about is seeing an in-network provider, which to a patient means everything that I'm getting is in network. Not that like the doctor's in network, but the facility fee I have to pay out of pocket with an out of network rate. So mm. we're always thinking about the patient experience and then mapping our information that way. Why would a provider be in network, but the facility be out of network? It's a great question. You might just have two different people running two different contracting processes. And as a provider, maybe I did do a contract. Maybe I did it individually. Maybe whoever's managing my contracting experience more broadly did so. Um, but maybe that particular room is actually not a part of the hospital system. It's a private room that's being rented. And then all of a sudden you start to get that complexity. So I think if there's probably a recurring theme around network contracts, it's that they're incredibly complex. And I think they're complex despite best intentions. And that's why I think you need a company like Ribbon Health that can make this information digestible and simple so that if somebody is just trying to find a doctor, there's a clear source of truth to do that. How does this problem impact patients most intimately? So at Ribbon, one of our core values is build with empathy. And we're always thinking about the patient experience first. And I think provider data is one of the places in the healthcare ecosystem where incentives are pretty clearly aligned between providers, health plans, and patients. And so we want to make sure that if we put in the patient first, we're able to solve all those problems. Given that a lot of our research has also been done on what is the patient experience like navigating the healthcare system. And I think that there are really three core issues that you see start to happen because of bad provider data. The first is access to care. And the most clear example I'll give is somebody is sick, they need to find a doctor, 
over 70% of people will go to their health plan website first to understand who is an in-network doctor. They pick up the phone to get an appointment. First phone number, dead number. Go on to the second one. Phone number is right. Address is wrong. Doctor's not there. Third phone call, some other variation of this problem. And then there's somebody who's sick. Maybe they give up. Maybe they say, I think I can tough this out. Maybe they go to the emergency room for a procedure that they absolutely did not need to go to the emergency room for. Your kid has an ear infection. They are screaming. They're in pain. At some point, you're going to stop making phone calls and just go to the place that you know, which might be the ER, and you're going to experience a 20x increase in the cost of care for somebody to write a prescription. And so that is that access problem. But then it also starts to veer into cost effectiveness, right? Like wrong point of care is a huge driver of healthcare waste in in the United States. I would also say like probably the best prediction of if you're having a cost effective or non-cost effective healthcare experience is, did you go to an in-network or out-of-network provider? Because they're in negotiated rates and it's much cheaper to go in-network. So now we start to layer on insurance information. And then the third, I think, is outcomes. Did you go to the right doctor for you at the right point in time? Somebody might be a phenomenal knee replacement surgeon, but they're going to show up as an orthopedic surgeon. And somebody with a shoulder surgery who has a need for a shoulder surgery should not be going to the person that spends 99.9% of their time doing knee replacement surgeries. And so that type of provider matching also has a very clear impact on quality of care and outcomes. And again, I think all of this is happening with everybody's best intentions in mind. So now you have an ecosystem where just the lack of provider data is driving low access to care, ineffective care, and overly expensive care. Those are the ways that it affects a patient. And we think that all of that can start to be solved by accurate provider data. Can you walk through quickly some of the different use cases for the platform and maybe some real life examples of customers today? We think of Ribbon as four core data modules, directory, second, network, which insurance plans as a doctor accept third, cost effectiveness, and fourth, quality indicators. So on a directory piece, we started out as a company that was tracking information on where does a given doctor practice? What is their phone number? We've since expanded that to also take locations to parity. If I'm trying to get an MRI, I don't necessarily care which doctor I'm seeing there. I want to make sure I get to the right facility. And so now having a locations directory, a provider directory, and then having the two inner links so you can track provider affiliations, it's a huge problem across the ecosystem. And I didn't even realize how painful locations data was. And so we've launched this product about four months ago. We're continuing to invest in it. I'm so excited to see where it takes us. On the network side, it's doing more. It's understanding these different network affiliations and being able to cover basically everybody in the country who might be using a product powered by Ribbon to find an in-network provider that requires additional partnerships and just driving scale. And then earlier this year, we launched our cost effectiveness and quality indicator products. We felt that it was really important to launch the two at the same time. I think one isn't helpful without the other. And the way that we're doing that is helping folks understand first, if I'm looking for a given procedure in a given market, how much should I expect that to cost generally? Like, what's my ballpark? Because I think that we found people don't really even have a good sense of that. Second, then, assuming that I am going to go and get a procedure, who are the most cost-effective providers near me? And we've always thought about this on a relative basis. What's a cost-effectiveness index? I think while it would be great to be able to say this procedure with this doctor will cost $5,742.52, there's a lot of variability in behavior and even the best predictive model might create an element of false precision. And so what we found is that a consumer, what they're really looking for is like, I'm going to do this, where should I go? 
And we can help them get a general estimate of that, but we never want to steer a consumer into a direction of false precision. And so that's where that cost-effectiveness product is today. I would love to, at some point, be able to get to that level of precision. And we're going to continue to strive towards that as long as we can. And then finally, on that quality indicator piece, we're thinking about quality indicators as a few different things. First, patient satisfaction. What does the patient experience go into a given provider? That's really important on the primary care side and anywhere where continuity of care is critical. But on the surgical side, it's not as important to some people. And what we found is that other indicators are more important and better drivers of outcomes. So how experienced is a given doctor at a given procedure? If I'm going to get a knee replacement surgery, I want to go to somebody who does knee replacement surgeries on somebody like me. And then second, what are some of those other process indicators? For an inpatient facility, what's the risk-adjusted length of stay that somebody has feeding more of those and eventually being able to gather outcomes at scale across all these different data contributions? We're already seeing outcomes. If somebody went to a given doctor to get a cataract surgery, we're able to help enable a referral follow-up to ask the right patient-friendly metric. Could you see better 90 days after your surgery as opposed to how are you feeling? And then by being able to feed those metrics and then also maintain the answers, we're building a truth set of outcomes that we could then start to help train our algorithms further. So that's kind of the cohesive suite of products that we have. And the goal is just to continue to make those better all the time until every decision is convenient, cost-effective, and high quality. Really around this cost-effectiveness and quality information, those two pillars, because this is ultimately the holy grail of healthcare. You want to maximize your quality utility while lowering costs. And no one has been able to achieve this yet. So first question is, where are you pulling these data from? What are your sources? How accurate are they? And two, where do you plan to take those two pillars moving forward? Good question. Totally agree with you. I think it has been one of the holy grails of healthcare. I would argue that there are many others as well. So I don't think that Ribbon is going to do this alone. And I want us to be an input for a lot of other kind of companies and solutions that are solving this problem. Cost and quality are also inherently personal. It's really hard to say objectively, this is a high quality provider because the question is high quality for whom? And we want to be the company that is helping feed the information to then help a care navigator or a referral coordinator or a doctor talk to a patient and say, what is it that you're looking for? And us be able to provide that information. My ultimate goal is for Ribbon to be able to provide a real-time patient-to-doctor match with our API. So we ingest some parameters and the type of patient and what they're looking for, and out comes an output of the types of doctors that might be good for that patient based on those parameters. That's how we think about that world. But I think it's ultimately the hard work is falling on these solutions because healthcare is services-driven. And we're that tech and enablement layer for those services. So as I think about how we're going to continue to invest in this product, it is acquiring additional data. We are buying and partnering for a massive amount of claims data. We have partnerships with physician review platforms. Our customers are also feeding physician reviews and outcomes data back into Ribbon for the purposes of one, maintaining that information for them, but also because they want the algorithms powering their products to get better. And ultimately, the way that we judge scale and accuracy is, do our customers feel like our API and our technology, does that enable them to do their job better and faster and in a way that is driving the best outcome for their patient? So we mainly work across three core segments, which ends up being the vast majority of the healthcare ecosystem. The first is payers, so health plans. The second is providers, provider groups, systems, telemedicine companies, anywhere where care is being delivered. And then third is patient-facing solutions. Think of the old health ways of the world, companies that are traditionally selling either into employers or providing a direct-to-consumer experience. All of these kind of segments need a place to be able to find a doctor. 
So on the health plan side, we work with them across several different parts of their workflow. First, their provider directory itself. We ingest the provider directory data. Our algorithms are able to score that information. They're able to identify what is likely to be right, what is likely to be wrong. We have a full solution built around it where we will provide recommendations to the health plan of what to do with their provider data. And we have a call center that is even able to run mock regulatory audits, trained by the same way that the CMS would do it, to make sure that a health plan has a really, really clear view of their directory and ways that they can improve it. The second piece of this for a health plan is then well, now that I have this cleanup directory, I need to make sure that it's reflective of my network. I need to make sure I maintain network adequacy. I need to make sure I can grow my network. So who are the providers to go and contract with? We also provide network solutions to these health plans as they think about expanding into a new market or making sure that within an existing market, they can maintain adequacy and a strong competitive network. That's on the health plan side. There are many other use cases for provider data within health plans, but that's really where we've spent most of our time over the last two and a half years. How do your algorithms work? How are you able to, with really high fidelity rate, whether something is more likely to be accurate versus not? This is where I think Ribbon is a really cool technology advantage. So I'll start at a high level, just what our methodology is, and then can go through why it continues to improve. So first, we are aggregating data anywhere that we can see a piece of information on a doctor. Our goal is to eventually have 100% coverage on any place where doctor information exists. So we have data partnerships, we're buying a lot of data, we scrape the open web, we tap into open government data sources, and we're looking both within healthcare and non-healthcare specific sources. So there are companies that are maintaining a board licensure for a given provider that should absolutely be a part of what we're looking at. But we're also looking at things like restaurant review sites where doctors all of a sudden have developed a presence. That data is incredibly noisy. We see over 30 phone numbers per doctor hit our system. These are things that a patient or a consumer or even a health plan or provider are also counteracting any given time. And so we need a way to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Back to your question of how do we know? We are building machine learning models that are able to understand if 800 sources agree and 200 sources disagree, what's the probability of those 800 being right? Let's say that we know that 800 sources said Dr. Smith is at 123 Main Street, 200 say she's at 400 University. What's the probability that she's at either or both of those locations? And we assign a confidence score to that. And that's what our customers are seeing. They don't need to see all of the sausage making of how many sources and why. What they're really looking for is one address or multiple addresses with Ribbon's assertion of how likely something is to be right or wrong. The reason we're able to train these models is because there's a very clear network effect to our business. Our customers are editing data all the time. When a referral manager calls and books an appointment on behalf of a patient, we're in their workflow. And they need to maintain that that address was in fact correct so that the next time they call or the next time that somebody else calls from clinic two miles away that's going to be a part of this primary care facility that they're calling the right location. We're maintaining all of these different versions of ribbon data across all of our customers, and they all look a little bit different. It's a fully customizable solution. And by providing this data management solution, we're then also seeing constantly validated information. So for a long time, the industry thought you had to call every single doctor or email them or fax them, and that's the only way to get the correct data. Well, I think if you ask a doctor how frequently they would like to be called by a provider data company, they're going to give you a very, very honest answer, and it's not every day. Also, even those phone calls are not necessarily right. But by having real interactions that are in workflow already, it's non-disruptive and we're able to get information back. That's our training set for us to then be able to train these algorithms to figure out what's right and what's wrong, which help us bring on more customers who added more data that make our product better and so on and so forth. 
Do you plan to integrate patient feedback into this loop as well? Because I would imagine that patients actually going to the doctor are almost the best validation method, right? They're actually physically going to the clinic and can validate that the address and phone number were right. So how is that integrated in? Yeah, absolutely. So we do already see some of that today. Some of our customers are patient facing and patients will report like doctor not there or yes, doctor was there. We're not touching any PHI. We don't want to touch any kind of personal health information from a patient because it doesn't drive our business forward. And I think it is data that needs to be treated and protected in very different ways. But what is really valuable is to know that 17 people said that this doctor is at this location or not at this location. That's going to affect our models and it's going to make us smarter. When you think about the next five years of Ribbon, what are new verticals or target customers or product features that you're really interested in pursuing that may not be on the docket right now? Let me just kind of first set the context of why we exist as we think about that five-year vision. And then it feeds really naturally into how we're thinking about different product lines. So our vision is to power every care decision to be convenient, cost-effective, and high quality. We think that there's anywhere between 6 and 10 billion care decisions being made a year in the United States, obviously many more than that globally. And our goal is to be able to affect every single one of them to then be kind of the kind of care decision that you would hope that your loved ones or that you have access to. So that's our vision. And so when we think about that, it's just, how do we do that? Part one is distribution, power every care decision. To do that, we need to be the infrastructure solution for every place where a care decision is being made. Health plans, providers, groups, systems, patient-facing solutions. And in a world where all of these decisions are being made digitally or affected digitally, we think that there's going to be a clear need for provider data literally 100% of the time. So that's part one. How do we make this as big as we can via distribution? Second, then, is the types of products that we're enabling. So what does that consumer or that doctor see when they're using these different uh, platforms? And that's where we focus on convenience, cost-effectiveness, and quality. So I think that a lot of our product suite to date starts to get at a good place of helping people get to those solutions. And we just want to do it better. So then I think the other piece becomes like, what are the different product lines that we're able to offer to drive that? And I think that we've launched the product lines that we need to to start to get at those care decisions across directory, network, cost, and quality. But now it's making them better. So our provider director solution, as far as we know, is the most comprehensive and accurate in the industry. We have never lost a head-to-head data test. But that's still not good enough because it should be 100% accurate. And just because we're better than industry average of 50% or better where some of the incumbents have lived for a while does not mean that that's the kind of product experience that you want to give to your loved one. And so that's how we think about that. Same with kind of building out our cost-effectiveness products, our quality indicator products. I want Ribbon to be the place that is able to collect outcomes from a patient level and from a doctor level so that we can then start to build those algorithms and not have to guess what is the outcome based on the processes that we see in the claims, which what we're doing, that was what we're doing now. And it's, it's powerful and it's effective, but it's a stretch away from what I think people are really looking for, which is if I go to this doctor, is this going to be the most cost-effective care experience? Is this the right doctor for me to see? And can I access that provider? So those are the types of product lines that we have launched and will continue to invest. On the directory front, we're maintaining both individual provider directory, what is a given doctor practice, as well as location directory. What is this facility? How are they affiliated with given providers? If I want to get an MRI, I usually am not thinking about who the provider is. I just care about finding a nearby facility. So making sure that those two are a parity. On the network side, I want to make sure that we have coverage for 99% plus of lives covered in the United States. So almost anybody who's using a product powered by Ribbon can find an in-network provider. Right now, we're close, but we're not there yet. I would say we're probably around 85%. So that's a huge gap, right? Like in an industry where 85% feels high, 
if you compare that to like the experience you want to have, that's not nearly good enough. And same with cost effectiveness and quality indicators. I just think that we have a long way to go as an ecosystem. And I want Ribbon to be the company that's helping drive that forward. Two follow-up questions. So the first is COVID-19, both headwinds and tailwinds. Everyone's talking about telemedicine and the shift to on-demand virtual care. And I would imagine that if someone is bullish on care being on-demand versus scheduled or planned, then perhaps provider data isn't as relevant a problem anymore. What are your thoughts on that statement? I love telemedicine. I think that it should be one of the ways that we're delivering care in this country. I think if you ask a lot of doctors, there is a very important element of in-person care as well. Seeing a patient, being able to feel how a joint is operating, those elements I think are going to remain important. And I think they need to get to be as on-demand as possible. And what we've seen is our partnerships with companies like Roe, we're seeing provider data be absolutely critical. I think telemedicine is an amazing entry point, but not everything can be solved with telemedicine. And so our work with Roe is actually bridging that gap between telemedicine and in-person care, where somebody can get referred within the Roe platform to an in-person provider. On the other side, you're also seeing non-telemedicine, traditional brick and mortar care models go into telemedicine as well. Our customers have launched telemedicine offerings that would then help guide a patient and decide, do I need to go in to see a doctor? Do I need to expose myself to going outside? I think that COVID, while is just an absolutely terrible thing to be happening to the world, I think that it has forced the digitization of the healthcare economy and the healthcare ecosystem much sooner than I think it probably would have happened. And we think that's great. And anytime, even if you're only going to see a telemedicine provider and you know you don't need to go see somebody in person, how do you choose the right doctor for you? And then take it to the next level. How does the algorithm that is pairing you with a doctor choose the right doctor for you as a patient based on your preference set? You need provider data for that. You need to know what is this doctor like? What kind of patients does this doctor treat? What are some of their characteristics, their specialties? There's a, just an immense amount of information that goes beyond just what is their physical location that is critical for provider patient matching. Got it. And walk us through the Roe partnership more. Why partner with Roe as opposed to a HIMS hers an AML, a Teladoc on their referrals management externally? Yeah, so we don't comment on kind of customers that we haven't yet announced, but I'll I can absolutely talk about, no, 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 totally fine, but I can absolutely talk about why Roe. So for us, I think it's important that Ribbon is working with companies that have an aligned vision. And we were always impressed with how Roe was thinking about their evolution as a healthcare company. And while I think that it's easy to think of any kind of telemedicine company, especially one that started out focusing on prescriptions as just that, I think that one thing that companies like Roe and Roe in particular have done an amazing job of is being able to create a front door to the healthcare experience. The question is then, what happens when somebody is in? And there's a small part of the healthcare ecosystem that is addressable by telemedicine. And I think that companies like Roe do a phenomenal job. And I think that these companies are also very savvy and they have the vision to understand that there are going to be other elements of the healthcare ecosystem that Maybe one day they'll want to own, but up until that point, they want to make sure that they're providing an amazing care experience for their patients and helping guide them. And I think that that's where Ribbon really comes in, is being able to facilitate all of those movements across the ecosystem in a seamless and convenient way. Another product initiative I want to dive into is your HSA eligibility service. Can you walk the listeners through that? And maybe set the for what is an HSA and why is that important for patients? 
Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we can start with what an HSA is. An HSA is a health savings account, and it's a great financial and healthcare instrument that allows people to get effectively more cost-effective healthcare. They're able to contribute their income to a pre-tax account, the health savings account, that then grows over time that they can then spend on healthcare. And the growth of that account is also non-taxable. And so people are basically able to save for their healthcare and then be able to get a lot more out of those dollars. We're huge believers in the HSA as a kind of a healthcare consumerism tool. And I think it enables people to prevent some of the cost issues that our healthcare system can sometimes burden them with. It's also an amazing place of healthcare engagement. So I, I mentioned before, digital healthcare solutions have a really hard time driving kind of recurring engagement. And I think we're starting to see that change. But HSAs didn't really face that problem from the get-go because people will go into their HSA to check how much money they have saved up for healthcare. That's usually also an amazing indicator for intent. Why would somebody go and check how much money that they have in their healthcare account? It's probably because they're thinking about saving up for healthcare or spending that money. And so Ribbon works with HSA platforms across a variety of different elements where we're actually helping drive that care navigation experience. Once somebody's in their HSA, how do they find the right doctor for them if they're going to spend on something? How do they find the right facility if they need an MRI? And the product that we launched recently, I think, takes us to the next step. It's helping somebody not only understand how much they have in their HSA and how to navigate that, but also helping them better understand the implications of that decision on their own plan design. So if somebody has a $5,000 deductible, and HSAs are meant for high deductible plans, how much of that deductible have they already used versus not? And we're able to pull this information in real time from the health plan, transfer that over to these different HSA providers, and it just creates a better healthcare experience for a consumer who's already thinking about and has intent to spend on healthcare. It sounds like given the inherent nature of Ribbon as sort of platform as a service, a lot of your time must be spent on business development and strategic partnerships versus product development. Like how as a leader are you navigating responsibility split and marketing a very young company and recruiting? How do you spend your time and how do you prioritize accordingly? Let me start with the fact that I'm exceptionally lucky to have an incredible team that I work with. And so I am not the person who is doing all of these things. There are people working really hard to make sure that these are really like exciting partnerships. These new products are getting built and developed. And my job is to make their job and their lives easier. So that's kind of what I think what my role needs to be. In terms of how I think about our company spending our time, the beauty of a network effect driven product or business is that one feeds the other. So when we invest in product, it gives us a better solution that we can then take to new customers. When we invest on the sales and partnership side, we get more distribution. It also gives us more data contributions, which makes it a better product. And so there's this self-reinforcing wheel. And our job is just to make sure that we keep moving quickly. And I think the most important part of that is to build an exceptional team to make sure that this is the kind of place that people want to work in and where they feel loved and cared for and supported and a place where they can do their best work. And when that is happening, there's this amazing like, reinforcing network effect where amazing, brilliant, exceptional people are out there building products, launching new solutions, signing up new customers, and it all just builds on itself. So that's, I think, where we are and where I want to make sure we continue to invest. You know, we talked a little bit at the beginning about going from 8 to 20 employees during COVID. How have you navigated leadership during this turbulent time? And how are you managing expansion? Where are your bigger growth areas and where are you looking to hire? 
Yeah, I would say that COVID definitely threw a bit of a wrench into how we were thinking about interviewing and onboarding because we've done everything in person since the beginning. So there was a moment where we all needed to stop and consider, does our interview process work remotely? How well does our onboarding process work remotely? And to be honest, some of it was working really well. I think that our company interview process translates well to a video screen. Um, Our onboarding process was horrible for remote because we were a small company. Like a lot of small companies, it was, here's a couple of things you're going to own. You have unlimited access to these other seven people sitting in the room with you. Ask any questions. We're here to help. That's our number one priority. That doesn't work very well in a remote setting. You can't just ask everybody to constantly be on video together. Or maybe you can, but we chose not to. What it did lead us to is to think about intentionality and to start to add a lot more structure to our people processes early. So while it was definitely painful in the beginning, and I think that we slowed down on hiring and onboarding for a month or so, it forced us to invest in the kinds of things that I think companies should be investing in. And we probably did so much sooner than we would have. And that's paid off quite a bit. And so our onboarding process has gotten to be a lot more streamlined. Our recruiting and our interview process has improved because of that as well. So I would much rather never have had to navigate this situation as a company. I'm glad that the team took something that was a challenge and made us so much better for it. Advice, lessons to others who are thinking about starting companies at this point around building culture, expanding teams. My advice would be for anybody who's either starting to think about a company or who's recently started one is to really place a lot of value on the values of the company and do so early. One of the things that my co-founder and I very fortunately did long before we even incorporated the company or had a terrible name for it and before we had any idea that this was going to be something that could work and maybe wouldn't work, we sat down and we said, what kind of company do we want to build? On the off chance that this is a thing that pops, we're not going to have time to do this later. And by the time that things are going well, it's too late. And so we have six core values. They're up on our website. They're written all over our office. We talk about it every single Monday in our all hands. Those are values that we live and that is a core part of our culture. And they're not just words on paper. And I think one of the reasons for that is that Nate and I said, like, what will this company look like if we're successful and we're proud of? And so we wrote down these six values. That has guided how we handle conflicts as co-founders, that has handled, that has guided how we take the company through turbulent and challenging times. And my hope is that it continues to make us better and to really keep ourselves honest as a company. One of the things that I love about the folks that we have on the team, there's just like aura of intellectual honesty. And if they really were just words on paper, then we would get called out for that right away. And so we think about that. We love that challenge because that means that we have to continue to live these values that we believe in. And now everybody who's joining us believes in and self-selects into. You mentioned several times your co-founder, also named Nate, which I think is hilarious. Is that why you chose him (laughs) as your co-founder? That Um, was the number three reason, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad it made top five. But tell us more about the story of meeting him, How do you divide up responsibility? Was there tension? And assuming you both were friends and obviously classmates before founding a company together, what was that transition like? So Nate and I, to your point, we were friends before we started a company. We met in business school. We met fairly early on in business school. We, one night, randomly, were just talking about startups. And then the next morning, I was on campus doing homework or reading a case or something. And Nate sat down with me and was like, I can't stop thinking about it. We should whiteboard together every single day. And there was this infectious energy that he has, and it's impossible not to just like dive into it with him. So 
lo and behold, we were whiteboarding together every single day. And the beauty of business school is that there is a lot of free time, but you kind of get to choose how to manage. And that's how we were managing our time. And it was just fun. And through that was that organic conversation where I was telling him about the healthcare experience my mom was having, made sure it's his own healthcare experiences, both on the positive and the negative side. And we knew that we had to do something. And again, it wasn't with like the idea of co-founding a company that maybe one day would be venture back. It was just, how do you solve this problem? And the really cool thing was Nate and I both just deeply cared about this problem. We found pretty quickly that we shared very similar values of what we hope a company is like. We disagree a lot and in a healthy way. And I think that's awesome. I would say that we definitely bring different perspectives and a complementary skill set. Nate's a software engineer by training. I'm certainly not that. And so that helps a lot for building a tech company. And I do think it's important for a technology company to have at least one of the founders be technical and can, with the ability to drive that initial product, that initial technology vision. And as I think about how our co-founder relationship has evolved over time, I think it's only gotten stronger. I think that we've learned a lot from each other. And this is why I think Nate and I both value diversity within our company so much is we've changed each other's minds in a lot of different elements. And even more so, I think our team has changed our minds in a lot of different elements. And that's something that we treasure and we value and we're going to continue to invest in in every way that we can. But because of that, I think this tension that a lot of co-founders talk about, we always viewed it as a gift. We always said, if we're not disagreeing, we're just missing something and somebody else is not going to miss that. And they'll build a company that we're hoping to build. So we also hope that everybody at the company embraces that. And we absolutely see that. I think it has to be respectful. It has to be coming from a place of kindness. But ultimately, we're trying to build a healthcare experience for everybody. And we need to make sure that those perspectives are represented as we're thinking about building this type of company. And so we want to see that kind of, again, respectful, kind tension and debate of different ideas. Well, thank you so much for taking an hour out of your busy day. Really appreciate it, Nate. Fascinating story around Ribbon having its own office and having a broken dishwasher, but also tackling <laughs> these really, really messy, dense provider data problems and applying them all across the healthcare ecosystem. So thank you for all the work your company is doing, especially to democratize healthcare access to all patients, not just the most privileged patients. I think that really sets your company up. Appreciate you sharing that journey with us. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you today.